Everything changes in today's marketplace. Technology, competition, staff, and even clients. Everyone is doing business differently than they once did. The challenge many face is keeping up with the change. Welcome to Thriving in Uncertainty with your host, Meredith Elliott Powell. By learning from the insights and expertise of guests like those you'll hear today, you can thrive in ways you never thought possible. Now, here is Meredith Elliott Powell. Welcome once again to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter how the marketplace changes or what this economy does. I'm Meredith Elliott Powell, your host, and I am very excited about today's guest and our topic, Hope at Work, the science of hopefulness. I love this topic because I really feel that it fits so beautifully into thriving in uncertainty. And the guest today, our guest, our expert is Libby Gill. Now, this is somebody I have wanted to have on the show for a long time. She is an executive coach, a leadership expert, and an award-winning author. Um, And believe me, she knows change. She grew up on two continents and went to eight different schools before putting herself through college waiting tables. And Libby, we are going to talk about that because I put myself through school the exact... uh, Um, the exact same way. She started her career as an assistant at Embassy Communications, a television company founded by the legendary Norman Lear. She survived three mergers to emerge as head of publicity, advertising, and promotion for Sony's worldwide television group in just five years. As I said, Libby is an award-winning author of five books, including the award-winning You Unstuck. But her latest book is The Hope-Driven Leader, Harness the Power of Positivity at Work. That's where we want to focus our attention today. So Libby, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Meredith. I am thrilled to be here. My favorite topic, uncertainty. (laughs) Well, we certainly have a lot of that lately, don't we? We do. I think it's, you know, a lot of people say it's the only constant is change. (laughs) And with that is ambiguity and uncertainty. But, you know, it is something that makes us as human beings, but also as business owners and as leaders is so, um, so uncomfortable. And I think while we have always dealt with uncertainty when it comes to business, it seems to be on steroids these days. Would you not agree? Oh, of course. We, I mean, look around us. Who, whoever thought they were going to hop in some stranger's Prius to go to the airport <laughs> or stay in somebody else's bedroom and, you know, all of the things we do in our personal lives. And when you look at the professional world with robotics and technology changes and just the way we work globally, it's, it's completely different than it was even just a year or two ago. Yeah, I was listening to um, uh, the, the radio the other day, and they were talking about the fact that um, Uber is now getting ready to get into helicopters. That their, you know, their thought is that you know instead of like taking a car from point A to point B, you jump into a helicopter and go, you know, just get above the traffic. So the 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 pace of change that we are living in is almost mind blowing. Right. And the amount of information. There's this great quote from the former chairman of Google, Eric Schmidt, who said, if you look at all of the information from the beginning of recorded information, which to me means, you know, must have been written on the side of a cave until, until 2003, it's that amount of information is created now every two days. And he said that in 2003. So imagine now in 2019, it must be like every day, every 15 minutes. 
Yeah, which makes you really wonder what it what what would it be like in the next couple of you know really in the next couple of years. Well, um, so we were talking, you know, before before we came on air, I was telling you that I had just come from doing a um, a keynote. What I was talking about was um, was uncertainty and just what that has done into the marketplace. And I really want to talk to you today about three things, which will probably morph into about twenty things. But really, what this uncertainty does to the to the employee, the worker, what it does to the leader, and then where this where this subject of hope um, really came out for you. But I want to start with today's worker. If I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about um, bringing employees on board, what do I need to know from a leadership perspective about what this uncertainty is doing to them? Well, that's, that's such a good question because we're not always aware of how people respond to uncertainty. What mm-hmm. I find as a coach and in the research is that about there's this little 20, maybe 25% of people that embrace change, that get excited by the opportunity. So when you send in that poor dreaded change management leader, I always feel sorry for them. It's like they've got a target on their back if they're the change person. About 20% of people say, yay, it's about time. This is great. And about 80, 85% of people are, oh no, here we go. Mm -hmm. And, And it's important for leaders or hiring managers to understand that Underneath all of that is just that basic fight or flight instinct. We still, our brains, our amygdala is the fear center. We still respond to change as danger. Mm-hmm. And even a good change, it, it, it triggers that sense of fight, flight, or the one we forget about, which is freeze. It kind of causes us to stay stuck in place. You know, I, if I close my eyes, all these people that are making these changes, they, they won't notice me back here. <laughs> right. And that's how people are feeling. So it's, it's really up to leaders and managers to, to navigate that and to create an atmosphere where people, it's, I mean, it's the name of your show, where people can thrive, where they get mm-hmm. that it's uncertain, it's scary at times, it can be stressful. But guess what? This is where, this is where growth happens. If you can reframe that and, and let people know that they, these, these changes are good. It may be bumpy for a while. You've got to be very honest about it. But ultimately, this is for our success. You know, it's, um, it's, I love that you said reframe, because one of the reasons I went down this path of talking about thriving and uncertainty, and I'm sure you've, you've experienced this as a, you know, as a coach and, um, and as a speaker, but I would go into organizations and I would say, how are things going? And everybody's really doing pretty well right now because the economy's rocking, things are hot. And they would say, things are re- re- really doing well, our numbers have been good, but oh, this uncertainty. It, you know, it didn't matter what industry I was working in. And I thought, why is uncertainty always a negative with that? And what would happen if we flipped the script and we started to think about something that's, un- and, you know, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, things are uncertain. If we started to think about them from a, you know, from a positive from a positive light. So as we go down that avenue, what are the things that leaders need to be doing now to prepare their teams? Because I quite frankly would think if you're in an organization that isn't changing, you're probably close to being out of a job. (laughs) Well, and that's true. I mean, look at at all the um, businesses on the Fortune 500 list, which was started, I think, in 1952. It's only about 14, 15 of those businesses still on the list. So companies that we never 
never thought would fail or flounder like the Sears of the world. You know, all of Mm -hmm. these companies are gone. If they're not looking at the future, it really is over. So what I think leaders need to do is, is first of all, to understand what your followers want. What do people need and want from their leaders? And frankly, I think deserve. And we're so used to looking at things from the, the corporate perspective, which of course is the mandate of leadership. You've got to know what the vision is, what the company wants from you. And most leaders are pretty good about that, but they don't always know what their followers want. And so I've, I've done a lot of work in, in my, my book about hope, which is another topic. We'll get to that. Right. That's really misunderstood. But what the data tells us, there's a great study on this. What your followers want is stability, which means in these times of uncertainty, you got to be the rock. You've got to be the <laughs> right. one shoring them up and supporting them. They want compassion. They want to be treated with some care and uh, even friendship, which doesn't mean you have to be buddy-buddy or coddle them or any of that, but treat them as human beings, not, not your personal drones. That You've got to have trust, which is, of course, just foundational. If you don't, you're not honest or respectful of others, that it's, you're not going to go anywhere. And finally, in this huge study, the last, the fourth thing that people cited was they want hope. They want mm-hmm. direction. They want a sense of guidance. They want to know where they're going. And that's, all, that's what led me to, to write this book is what does that mean? What does it look like? How do you measure it? All of those things. Well, you know, when you first came upon hope, I mean, I know the industries that you work in. Um, it had to have felt soft. <laughs> You think? <laughs> oh my gosh! I've been explaining this for the past year because yeah. it was funny because two publishers approached me. I had a, a little ebook on my website to say, "Wow, that's really interesting," and there's a science behind it, like like the research around happiness. And they both thought, "Boy, in this uncertain, divisive <laughs> time, this is what we need." And I first launched it, and the response was kind of, "Huh." No, what we need is somebody to kick us in the rear end. And slowly, I've had to build to a level of acceptance where people get get the definition of hope because we've all said, and I, this is my disclaimer when I speak on this topic, I know you've said hope is not a strategy or hope is not a plan, but by this definition, and it was really engineered by two real uh, pioneers in the science of hopefulness, it's about having a future forward vision. You see the future so clearly. It's right out there. It's lofty. It's, it's you know, up high. It's not easy to get to, but it is attainable. So it's this idea that y- you got to have some real passion behind it, but it's also practical and pragmatic. And as a leader, especially in uncertainty, if you can say, here's where we're going, people. Here's what it looks like. Now, let me connect that to each of you. And, you know, if you're in a company of 30,000 people, the CEO is not going to do that. But you've got to teach that down through the organization. So you create a workplace that values the vision of the future and has the wherewithal to keep driving towards it. Does the, um, you know, when you first discovered, when you were first doing the research and coming out and figuring out what the followers of leaders truly wanted, were you surprised that hope came out as, as one of them? Yes, absolutely. Uh, surprised and delighted, I might say, because I wrote a book years ago. was my second book called Traveling, Hopefully, and it was really about a, a personal journey. I grew up with a lot, of, a lot of familial baggage, as many people do, and it was, <laughs> 
was a shedding of that. And I and it was fairly dramatic in my family. So I wrote about that. And the title came from a Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the novelist, a quote where he says, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. And that really spoke to me. And I think I encountered that in grad school when I thought I was going to be a therapist and, and thankfully did not become one, became a uh-huh. coach, which to me is that great. Uh, (laughs) sweet spot between business and how the brain works. And that quote just stuck with me. And that's how I titled that. And then later, as I became an executive coach, and really working with the dynamics of organizations and leaders, I thought, I, I, let me see what else is out there. And I was, I was thrilled to see that there was some science on this topic of hopefulness. Well, you know, I, th- I think that we can, um, you know, to me, when it comes to leadership, um, politics is always the best example are politicians of some of the best and the worst of us as we come to leadership, uh, you know, as we come to leadership examples. And I think that when I look at people who have either created great movements or um, been successful politicians or really helped people conquer unbelievable adversity, um, it really came down, could they position hope? You know, it's interesting. This is right now we're in, we're in Gay Pride Month and mm-hmm. I just posted something that I saw on someone else's feed and it was so beautiful. And I'd never heard this quote from Harvey Milk, who, you know, was yes. uh, part of the LBGTQ movement years mm-hmm. ago and then was, was murdered. And he said, hope is never silent. And I ah. thought, talk about a movement. I mean, he was at the forefront of the LBGT movement and that was a quote that he said it was a famous speech. Hope is never silent. And I thought, yeah, that's, he was able to harness that around. We've got to speak out. We've got to speak up. We've got to be present. We cannot give up this fight. And to me, another great sort of, I call these the heroes of hope is Helen Keller, who, you know, most people um, learned about in the fourth or fifth grade, but, and she had obviously the, the, the physical disabilities, deaf blind that were almost insurmountable at that time and yet what most people don't know and I love to cite because she has another quote that I love but she's the first deafblind person to graduate from college in the United States. Wow I did not know that. Isn't that amazing and she of course tried for Harvard they wouldn't take her because she's a woman so she graduated from from Radcliffe which is now part of Harvard. (laughs) Right. But she was one of those people. And the quote that really speaks to me is she said, alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. And mm-hmm. that was really about, you know, I'm fighting the good fight for all people with disabilities, but we need people to rally. We need other people as part of this. And I think that's what hope is about. How do you move the planet forward in whatever is your, your sort of lane? We know. I mean, just when you when you when you speak about Harvey Milk, when you speak about Helen Keller, I mean, you can talk about those things, and I feel the movement in in myself, as I'm sure many listeners are. I mean, you just it starts to ignite a passion in you just talking about those people and, and what they did. But so, what is the science of hope? Well, funny you should say, Meredith, a movement that the word hopian, and that's where I started with my research, the word hope is derived from Old English, and it's the word hopian, which means literally to leap forward with expectation. Okay. And it really is about that kind of forward momentum. And there were two men who started this this science. And one was a fellow named Dr. Rick Snyder, who was at the University of Kansas, positive psychologist. If there had been 
that field back in the days when I was in grad school for psychology, I would have continued on, but it was then it was a completely different science. And he was on sabbatical from teaching his positive psych classes. And he thought, you know, I'm going to go check out the research at our, our library and see what there is on this idea of hope. And he discovered there was no research, there was no data, there was no scientific study. And I think, you know, to put myself in his shoes, and he's passed away now, but he must have thought, well, let's just see if we can measure that. Let's, you know, the thinking was, if you can't measure it, there's no science behind it. So he created a hope scale. And um, and I had the good fortune, they, I was allowed to recreate it in my book, but he has 12 questions that help you me measure your, your agency, your ability to manage uh, that kind of forward momentum. And he said, it's about willpower, which is pretty much how we think of it, but it's also about way power by which he meant that idea of, you know, I love this in, in design and in organizational design, they call it wayfinding, you know, how you navigate around a building. And he said, way power is multiple pathways to reach the end result. And that really, I thought, well, that's really brilliant because in today's world, we're not moving the assembly line faster in most industry. Um, we are dealing, we're pushing ideas and information and imagination faster. And if you have one way to get there, wherever you're there is, and you know you hit an obstacle, you're in big trouble. But right. when you recognize multiple pathways, and better yet, when when leaders allow others to establish their own pathway, then you know you've got this exponential chance of reaching the end goal much much more quickly. Is is though. Is it a way that we are wired, that we are more um, bent to be hopeful? And is it something we can learn to do? I think we can learn it. And, uh, and the other great pioneer is a, a, an oncologist named Jerome Groupman who said to him, and he's, you know, he's giving cancer diagnoses. And mm. what he found with people that were more successful in fighting the illness, and he said early on, he didn't know the outcome. People who look like, you know, it would be a, that would be the end of it. Um, and they survived and others who didn't, but he, he came to see that it was two things that he thought comprised hopefulness. And one was belief that change was possible. So if you can change your mindset, not easy to do, but to me that underlies everything. If, right. you, if you believe that change is possible and you think, oh, does, doesn't everybody believe that? But, you know, you look around your own little sphere, there's, there's always somebody that they're, they're just stuck where they are. They really don't believe that things can move or change. And it, then he added to that, it's also an expectation that what the individual does, what you do, that changes the outcome. It's You can't rely on anybody else to do it for you. Although, if you think of, of lots of people having a similar expectation, like in business, we're going to get here uh, or we're going to shift over here and you believe that you can make that change, and you expect that you're all driving the result, then that's a very powerful, that's a very powerful way to, to actually get to that end goal. So you can shift those beliefs. I mean, that's why well, people come to coaches and, and come to keynotes with that hope they're going to be able to make that one little shift. Yeah, and isn't it, the, um, isn't it what, we're, what we're trying to do with people, too, is you're hoping that you, you're, that you just spark that thing that begins to shift the paradigm that, you know, that, that 
opens people up and, and begins to give them, you know, the opportunity to see that they, that things could be differently, could be right. different. Yeah. So there I am. I am. So I'm listening to, to, to this show and I am a leader of a large company or I am a small operation with three or four people. One reason I love this topic is because it applies no matter the size of your organization or, um, you know, or what position you're in. And you are lucky enough to be that leader who is um, filled with hope and is able to articulate and communicate that. How do you begin to spread that in to the organization? And I first want to talk about corporations because having come out of corporate, you know, like you did, I think one of the, one of the most interesting things I found was if I got to meet the founder, the founder would be full of that vision and that hope. And it was exactly like talking to frontline personnel. You know, there was just a match there. But somewhere in the middle, it just got all mucked up. You know, and yeah. and you would you would lose those things. So how do you how do you begin to to you know infiltrate a company or integrate it into a business? Well, I do believe that there are some ways to do that, and this is the the part of me that's creative and passionate, and then the part of me I'm a diehard pragmatist. If you can't see <laughs> it in the real world, forget it. And and the first thing is is really to share your purpose. I mean, we all hear about start with why and paint a picture of the future and all of that, but how do you do that? How do you share that? You've got to have something that people can rally behind. If you look at companies like like Tom's Shoes is a great example. They've got that one-for-one one program. You buy a pair of shoes. They donate it to a child in need, another pair of shoes. And they, they're right here in Southern California. I've been there. Um, this amazing organization. And they have centers around the world that donate shoes. And, mm-hmm. and everybody to the barista in their amazing lobby knows that, that's what they're about. That's what they do. And then they started the same thing with, with eyeglasses. So you've got to have that rallying cry. And you may not think, well, if we make um, transmitters or we make widgets, it's not that exciting. But look at the end user. I mean, companies aren't in existence to make something that's unimportant. You know, there is somebody that cares about your product or service. So connect people to that end user. I spoke at uh, Ed Medtronic, which is a big medical device company. They make things like, you know, pacemakers. They brought people who were uh, the users, imagine that, of a life-saving device to the sales team to say, wow. this is what you've done for us. I mean, I don't think there's a dry eye in the house when they connect those kinds of results to the people that aren't in the field, that don't see that always happening. But you've got to find that connection. Another thing that, you know, I was a communications executive for a long time, mm-hmm. offer and share information. Information is like the lifeblood of the company. When companies withhold it, as I'm sure you've seen and I have, mm-hmm. or they use it as a bargaining chit or they share it with people they favor, then people get that that suspicion and that lack of trust. You want to be as open and granted, there's some information that can't be shared or can't be shared immediately. But when people trust you to let the information, both the, the hard facts and the soft emotional truths, when they let that flow, there's a completely different feeling within an organization. It, avoiding micromanaging. You know, when I see this all the time as a coach, a leader says, oh, here's what I want you to do. Now you go run with it. And then they swoop in and fix it. And it's like, how does that make you feel? That, that just takes away your ownership and authorship. So there are all of these things from just 
making your emails a little bit more warm to really identifying the purpose and getting people behind it. So, but it's, it takes effort. It takes thought. It also takes you going out and asking people, what would you, and you, maybe you do it through a, a culture or engagement survey, and maybe you do it by old fashioned walking around, but you've got to get to know what's on people's minds. And yeah, if you're one of those huge corporations, maybe you'll never meet the founder, but whoever your immediate supervisor is, if that just trickles down from one level to the next, it will hit the front lines. The, what are the, um, you know, when I, I think that, you know, as I look at leaders today, I mean, in essence, they've got to be really effective communicators and their number one job has got to be culture more so than their predecessors. Would you agree with that? Oh, so much so. And mm-hmm. and the, the tipping point is the leaders who have been great tactical strategists, the doers, the implementers of the organization, and then suddenly they're bumped up to a higher level, which often is because they deserve it. They've earned it. They're the right person for the job, but it comes with a little bit of a Oh my gosh, that that kind yeah. of shock of, wait a minute, I don't have to be the subject matter expert because I've now got, you know, eight direct reports and then 600 people under them. They've got to be the ones that are the communicators, the culture builders, the, the bridge builders. They've got to do all of that. And it really comes down to developing your own style. Um, I work with a lot of young leaders, emerging leaders, which is just a... a that really is a joy to me. I've got two millennials of my own and I find more and more young leaders coming to me and, and they really have to, they've got to learn that, that all leaders, they often think leaders are, you know, the the extroverts, they're the wild, they're the loudest, they're the sometimes cutthroat. And that's (laughs) not the case. You've got to develop your own style, your own. And that goes for communication as well as leadership. Yeah, I think one reason what you're talking about is so incredibly important is because I find with emerging leaders, one of the biggest challenges they've got right now is that their mentors who are helping them are leading an organization that is going to be very different from the organization that they lead. For sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, it's a challenge for them. But then we are back to, so where does, if you are an emerging leader and you are working for a leader that is not, you know, is not hope inspired, does not lead from, you know, from um, creating hope and creating a movement. Because one thing that I really loved is when you said it, it is, um, it's, you know, it, it, it can be started with you. It's up to you. Because I've always felt that, especially when I worked in corporate, that one of the biggest challenges of making change was trying to convince corporate to make change. I was more effective if I could take my department, make the changes, we could get results those results were powerful enough that they spoke to that they spoke to the home office that then they would make change you know that if you started kind of started at that grassroots level Oh, I think so. Meredith, we had the same career path, I think. <laughs> and, and corporate, you, you didn't quite say it like a bad word, but often <laughs> it's like, oh, what does corporate want? Um, and yeah, I was always that person too. Yeah, me too. Corporate um, and also your own people. And it, it is easier to get your own team to make change. You've got a closer relationship. You've got the trust level. And for millennials, and, and I, you know, when I can come up for a different, with a different word, I think, Millennials yes. 
to be grateful. Emerging leaders, because of course, Gen Z is entering the workforce. The 18 and 19 right. year olds are already here. It, it's a very different world. And I think it, it's the onus is on the, the senior, the established leaders to get on the bandwidth, to understand how others think. And, and also we can't paint them with the same brush, which I see often. There's a little bit of too much or a lot too much of that. They're so entitled. They're so this, they're so that. Instead, we, we've got to open our scope and realize that these emerging leaders coming up the pipeline grew up in a vastly different world. First of all, there is the immediate gratification. You do get a lot of feedback. You do work in teams. You do share a lot. And those are some of the complaints I hear, the oversharing. So, but I think for the emerging leaders, there's, they've got to learn to manage up pretty quickly. They've got to learn that there is a level of appropriateness that their managers uh, may not have shifted their mindset to the fact that it's no longer your rear end in the chair from nine to five or eight to six. It is about results. And when they can begin to share the results they're making as an individual contributor or as part of a team, that's got power. That's got a lot of, then suddenly you can get people's attention. But they've also got to work with the, the, the boomers or even the traditionalists at the older end of the scale and understand that they're going through a shift as well. So there's that kind of meeting in the middle where we've got to just kind of see where people are in their own journey and how best to communicate with them. So, you know, it's sort of sometimes the younger leaders a little bit getting off the high horse and saying, yeah, I've got to work with this established leadership. And the established leaders thinking, you know, I don't know everything. And these young leaders have so much access to information, which they've had since junior high. Uh, they can find things immediately and they share things and they repeat things. I've got to understand and learn that often when they come back at me with some information or something, I haven't thought about it. They've, they've sourced it. Well, they know what they're talking about. So yeah. we got to listen. I, I so agree with that. I have, um, it always makes me laugh when I hear, you know, people complaining about the younger generation because, you know, you probably grew up with a father like me who, you know, my father would come home from the office, sit down to eat a meat and potato. And then the first thing he did was complain about my generation. I mean, I think you can, think you can trace us thinking that this country is going to, you know, this world's going to fall apart due to the younger generation, probably all the way back to, um, back to Socrates. You're and absolutely think, right. It does yeah. go back to Socrates and Plato. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think that there is, I think, you know, the organizations that are quote unquote going to win or going to succeed or going to thrive in uncertainty are the ones that do look at the workforce and they can engage their young people in a, in a level to take them for the creativity, the out-of-box thinking, and the confidence they have to think that they deserve certain things. I mean, I think there's real power in that. The other part of that is there's just something to be said for the wisdom of having gone through challenges that you can only get through age and being able to bring those two pieces together. Yeah, that's exactly right. You you merge those together and and give people the benefit of the doubt. Assume good intent and assume that people know what they're doing, of course, with guidelines and check-ins and all of that. But if if you can bring this team spirit that, you know, most my kids grew up, everything in school was in teams. Yeah. And they have a great spirit for working with others. They take their colleagues and their friends' advice very seriously. And that's a great thing as opposed to 
you know, where I grew up, it was much more of a, it was an individual contribution level that you were, you were rated and ranked on. And I think there's a lot to be said for that teamsmanship because we work across time zones and borders and all of that now. And even if there is some sort of formal hierarchy, which is even disappearing, we've got to be able to communicate in ways that join us together. The more complicated and complex the outside world and the organization, the more we have to cut through that and connect on a human level so that we can trust each other. And it's kind of like my, my son says to me, if I'm going to go out and do a speaking engagement or something that's different, he'll say, you got this, mom, you got this. <laughs> think if everybody on your team, you had that kind of spirit for one another, it's, it was, I, we'd be out of business. You know, they wouldn't right. need us to talk about uncertainty <laughs> and, and how to navigate all of this if, if people were doing it. But it, it, it's just not so much part of the human condition because we, we are born and bred to, you know, look for bad news. It's called negativity bias. We are scanning the horizons for the, the bad stuff, the predators, the dangers. You know, I think another thing that so impresses me with um, the younger generation is, is acceptance. I mean, things that things that will shift or change, um, you know, in the in in the world. And I'm like, okay, that's a I'm a little struggling to comprehend or to understand that or whatever. And they roll with everything so easily. Yep. I I remember my my younger son on the middle school basketball team. And there was there was a young man, a boy who uh, Mm -hmm. was deaf. Mm -hmm. It it just didn't occur to anybody that there was an issue, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't even enter their heads. It just was. Yeah, and I think that's a. I think I think companies have a real opportunity to capitalize, because I think that is a. I think that is a gift, and a skill, or a. Or I don't even know if it's a learned behavior. What it is with um, with with young people, but they really have an ability to go. Okay, that's the way it is. Let's roll and and let's work with it. And their ability to adapt is very impressive. Yeah, I mean, in in this case, it was we can't pass from the back. We can't yell his name. You know, it's like okay, I learned you got to pass sideways or from the front back, or whatever you would say in basketball terms. But Mm -hmm. that's what they did. That's how they adapted. And I do see a lot more of that. I mean, there's the ADA laws. There are all kinds of, but it doesn't always trickle down. You know, there's there's the the standard and the law, and then there's the emotional side where you see, I mean, we still see so many examples of racial injustices or inequalities, gender. Um, We haven't reached parity, obviously, men and women. There's lots of science and data around that. So I feel like we may be heading in the right direction, but the what you say or write in your, you know, your employee handbook versus what we feel Otherwise, you'd have one diversity inclusion seminar and you'd be done. But, you know, we're dealing with deep-seated fears and biases. Yeah, I also feel like it is... I feel like it is things that you you use the term at the beginning. It's something that we've got to learn to be more compassionate uh, about to one another. I had a former mentee when I I worked in corporate. I mean, you're so right about how I use the term at times. Um, (laughs) But the uh, but she had come to me. She had um, she had just won um, a top performer in a particular area, and she had she had been given um, one tickets to a um, 
golf tournament, a professional golf tournament that everybody was going to. And her boss, who was a former peer of mine, quite frankly, he was a few years younger than I am. And he called her in and said, I got, I got you tickets to watch the girls play because I figure you'd want to watch the girls play. And she came to me to talk to her about it. She said, I don't know how to handle well, my immediate reaction was to get mad. Yeah, right. and luckily, luckily, I had 24 hours to think about it. And I thought, you know, he, he did not mean that with ill intent, right or wrong. His intent was to be supportive of her. Right. And, and if we get mad, we shut everything down. Or if we take this as an opportunity to say, thank you for looking out for me, let me help you educate it. Because sometimes I think that all the rules are so confusing that I don't know that you can be 100% right. <laughs> oh, and they're particularly uh, confusing for men, I think. Yes. Um, I just spoke at a women's professional group, and which I love to do. Uh, and there were two men there who were sponsors or in some way connected to the event. And I said, I asked the group, do you feel, and I'm talking about exactly that. You've got to educate. I call it leaning on. Leaning yeah. on is great, but you better lean on, <laughs> teach them, train them, bring them with you. And I said, how many of you would like to see men at this event? Because it's an annual event. A lot of hands went up. I said, how many of you have invited a man to join you? All the hands oh, went down. Attention. I said, just bring them. I hope next year at this event, it's going to be half men, half women, or some mix of male and female, as it should mm -hmm. be. Uh, if you want to educate men about the truth of gender bias, just like you said, that fellow was doing her, right. he, was, he was gifting her this great win. He, it didn't occur to him. He was just trying to be a good guy. Yeah, I have, um, I had another, um, another friend of mine that um, he had said he was with a group of um, younger women at a conference we all attend. And he got out and he opened the door, just like his mother had always told him to open the car door. And one of the younger women had said, you know, that's really rude you wouldn't have done that for a man. And so he was relaying the story to me and said, so now I've learned I don't open the door. And I said, Chuck, I'm really sorry about this, but if you didn't open my door, I would think you were uncouth. And I said, so I'm just telling you to, so that you know, you have absolutely no way of winning because not only are there not any solid rules, we have all made up our own rules as to way that, you know, they apply. So I think that we have to talk and we have to communicate more and we have to be more compassionate with yes. people. Yeah. And that goes back to the good intent. Another yes. thing people can do, he could say is, may I get the door for you? Yes. Nonchalant and easy, but yeah, it's hard. It is yeah. really tricky. <laughs> <laughs> because you can have an ardent feminist who's, you know, 65 and says, how dare you? And yep. you can have a 23-year-old who says, are you out of your mind? Or, gee, thank you. You opened my right. door. Really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a can't win. But the only way you can is, I, I, I borrowed this phrase from a colleague who says very inelegantly, put the dead rat on the table. Just put <laughs> it out there and ask the question. Just yeah. Hey, I really don't know what to do in this situation. I love your point of view. Or just a simple, may I get that door? Uh, yeah, it is tricky. And I hear that from, from male leaders who are a yeah. little nervous about it. They, they're afraid they're going to be busted for, oh, gee, I said you look great today. Oh, wait, wait yeah. I can't say that. I can't, oh, I can't do that anymore. Um, and, you know, all movements push the edge of the envelope. They push to the far extreme. You know, it's the bra burning. How, what a silly thing on its face, right? right? I'm going to go in and burn my bra on a bonfire. That's just weird. But they were making a statement and then it backs off to a level. And yeah. That now with millennials. I mean, my kids went to schools where there was a trigger warning for a World War II history class. There could be violence discussed, which to me was just the nuttiest thing I'd ever heard. But 
I got the sentiment. It was kind of like, you're going to sign up for a World War II history class and not think there might be some discussion or reference to violence? How does that right. work? But they felt, no, we got to let kids know that's, that's the student population today. So, you know, eventually some of these things will settle and then there'll be new, new uncertainties to take their place. That's just the world we live in. Well, I think you're making such a great point about a movement is because it does, I think if it doesn't push to extremity, it can't ever get traction. Right. And, and then it, it goes to its, you know, goes to its point and, and brings back. And I would assume then as a leader, when I am starting my movement and creating hope and the difference that we want to make in, you know, in the world with our product or our service or our company, I probably have to be extreme. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I, I took in my leadership world and the entertainment world is, is pretty crazy and not so <laughs> fuzzy. And I felt like I was on a personal mission to teach and train and coach my, my team to be leaders. And, um, and I took it really personally. I had one, my first real assistant developed um, a very rare aggressive form of cancer. And boy, that was my first lesson on how do you rally and protect somebody in that situation. And, and, and I've, you know, we've been friends now for 30 years, my first assistant ever in the corporate world. Wow. And, and she survived. And I, I told her story. She gave me permission to tell, to tell her story in my, in my hope book, which was really eerie because then her husband happens to be a, 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 a professional audio engineer. And he, he did the audio book and had never heard the story about his own wife and how we rallied around this young woman who was then in her twenties and, and really protected her. And that to me, and uh, people sense will say, what is your greatest you know, achievement? And, and that's one of the stories. So what is the result? What are the results of hope in the workplace? Because I told you, I've been sort of um, obsessed with you lately and watching your videos and reading <laughs> things and reading things about, um, about you. And, I, and one of the things that really hit me is you said, you know, you can, you can put a lot of these things out there. Um, you can care about people. You can create hope because it's a nice thing to do. But even if you're not into the moral component, of it, it does create bottom line results in the workforce. Yes, it does. It creates higher uh, productivity, which is bottom line results. It creates retention. It helps you with uh, recruiting efforts because you have an employer of choice brand and that word spreads, particularly spreads if you give people the script. You know, here's how we talk about the company. In, in way back, the March of Dimes was not just March of Dimes. It was, we save babies. That's what they did. I mean, it's something that gives you that little chill of, wow, that's the mission. It's not the name of that organization. It's what we do. You connect people to that end result. And you, people want to come on board. They want to be part of that team. They want to get excited. It helps you as a leader blast through some of those barriers, cut through that red tape, get people on board to feel like that they want to do their best for you. I was just talking to someone in a coaching session the other day that said, you know, everybody's out of here at five o'clock. They want to go home. They're not engaged. And of course, my thought is, and I have to be gentle and and time it right, is what are you doing wrong, leader? What could you be doing better? Why do they want to leave? Why is everybody scatter the minute, you know, it's quitting time? Instead of finishing the job at hand, there's something wrong there on a, a foundational, fundamental level. And, I think hope there's a there's of course a study on what happens. We hope high hope people we set more goals, 
we set more ambitious goals, we are more successful at reaching goals, and we have more satisfaction and less stress in attaining those goals. The, um, the you know, as I sit here and I think about it, it's making me think about um, leaders that, that I have um, worked for, both those that really lived in that, um, you know, inspired type of way really led an organization and and those that don't and it it it's really making me think about just how incredibly powerful leadership is one way or the other and that it really the challenges that you're having in your organization truly could be traced back to the leader oh i think for sure and you can be that hopeful ambitious thoughtful hardworking person and some organizations will just beat it out of you. And that's when mm-hmm. people have to make the tough decision. Do I move on? And in today's market, that's what they're mm-hmm. doing. 71% of workers are looking for other jobs right now, according to Gallup. Think about mm-hmm. That's pretty sobering, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that is, um, I think that combined with the fact of, you know, I think in today's, it's so difficult to find employees in general because the, because the market's doing well and things are good. But I think that what, what leaders are really underestimating is just how many people they have there getting a paycheck who really aren't interested. And they're not interested because you're not giving them anything to get interested in. Well, and that's quantified every year by Gallup and countries around the world. Um, And it's at about 67% of unengaged or disengaged, which is the people that are actually harmful to the organization. And it's not that hard. I was, I I mean, it's hard, but it isn't. I, I was speaking to a group of Marriott general managers, and I'm in the middle of this presentation talking about hope and all this, and somebody just piped up, that's not what kids today want. And first of all, it was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting to be heckled, but it was a great opportunity. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, no, 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 I don't care about any of that. Uh, They just, they'll leave for any, anything that looks better. Grass is greener. And another fellow said, you know what I do with the young leaders, the, the frontline folks? He said, I save really fun, interesting, doesn't have to be done today, but we need to do this projects. And when my young workers are bored or they're looking for something different, I say, hey, how about bumping up our social media presence? Or how about redesigning all these forms? Or how about creating this survey? And he said, they love it. They love the chance to try something new. And I know what they're good at. And I know how to challenge them. And then it's kind of the gold star moment. They get the recognition for going above and beyond. And they also love that. And who wouldn't? You know, we all want that great job. And not only am I saying this to you, I'm going to spread it to everybody. What a great job you did with whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I see, I really, I really believe, I don't think there's any difference in what young employees want and older employees want. I think the only difference is, as an older employee, I already have a house and a mortgage, two kids, <laughs> and, and, and I've got to save for retirement. I quit a long time ago. I just never left the building. And, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't raised in an age where I would move back home with my parents. You're right. You know, right. It's just, that's the only difference. Yeah. Younger, younger employees leave because they do have a choice. You have a lot of people staying there who quite frankly, aren't giving you everything, but they're, but they're stuck in a time in life when you just have times in life where you have far more commitments than you have the freedom 
to do what you want to do professionally. Right. That's exactly right. But they're still building skills. They're building their um, equity. They're building relationships. They're doing all, you're right. That's all the same things we all want as humans. It's that primal. We want to connect. We want to belong to something. We want to be challenged. We want to learn. Granted, yes, there are some people that don't, you know, they're already given up or checked out. But most of us want that, and it's it's up to both the the institution and the individual to find that challenge for themselves, um, or for the institutions to provide the the wherewithal that individuals can say, "Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that." And if it's no longer there, I, I uh, coached a woman who was she was an engineer, and she, but she was sort of a closet creative person. And after she had planned the holiday party and done the graphics for the annual report, you know, about 10 times, it was like, I mean, she said to me, I, I, I will kill myself if I have to stop and stay yeah. another day on this job. Um, and she left and she found a way into entertainment. And yeah, it's like, don't, don't give up and stay, give up and do something new or different inside or outside the organization. Which I think is such an interesting topic, too, which is something I think that leaders need to realize today is I don't know that the goal is to keep somebody for 30 years. It has the goal switched to, I want to get as much as I can get out of the person while they're there. Because I think we're living in a society, you know, when I first, when I quit my first job and went to another job, I thought my poor mother was going to have a heart attack because in right. her mind, oh my God, we got you out of college. You've got a good job. Could you just stay there for the next 40 years? So your father and I know you're safe, you know? And, um, and you know, where I, I mean, I just, I started to move around in, in careers. And I, I think as you know, I mean, what is your perspective on that, that as leaders, we need to start making some changes? Well, we, we know that from the data that people don't stick around. You hear anything from the average job length is two years to five years, but obviously they're not sticking around very long because, you know, younger leaders haven't seen any permanence. They, do, they don't see longevity in institutions and they're not, they're not thinking they're going to be 30 years, nor would they want to because it sounds really boring. And they've seen people like you and me work really hard and do a lot of the same things and burn out on it. So they want more challenges. They want to work more uh, mobily, more remotely because the tools are there. So people that restrict them from things that could be done differently, um, it feels like work. And granted, work's not always play. And a lot of older leaders will say, yeah, they don't want to do anything the way it's done because they always think there's a better way. Then, you know, some of the challenges to say, okay, you don't want to fill out this form because you think it's stupid, then figure out a better form or a different way to do this. So I, I do think we've got to prepare for people to move. It's just the way that we're working now. And if you can create an atmosphere where people can move internally, uh, I would have stayed in the studio world probably for much longer if I'd been able to do that. But once you're good at something, you're stuck. And I don't think that's the way the world is going to work from now on. You've got somebody great. You better retrain, yes. re-challenge and move them to the next gig inside the, inside the company. Yeah, I think that um, one thing that I know when I work with organizations, I feel like one struggle leaders are trying to get through their head is, you know, leaders who are, you know, um, probably 50 plus is most of us grew up in a world where if you if you worked hard, 
um, your job would be there. You know, it wouldn't be gone. And if you just didn't cause any trouble, you could probably retire there. But I don't care the age of an employee now. Everybody is thinking, whether they're conscious of it or not, downsizing, outsourcing, merger, acquisition, I could be replaced by a robot. And as leaders, we've taken care, we've taken guarantee off the, ta- off the table. And I feel like what you're sharing with us today is one of the most powerful things you can put back in its place is hope. Yeah, is hope and culture and forward thinking and a genuine investment in people, just a a level of care that exceeds the job description where people feel like I'm valued here. I, they they need me. They want me here, and they're and they're showing me that. It's it's not something that comes out once a year at a, a performance appraisal. I get it that I'm I'm challenged and I'm valued. You know, it's it in some ways it sounds like probably um, not that much has changed. You know, because what you're talking about made me think of that Henry Ford quote. Um, uh, you know, your worst. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen to you is not that you don't train your people. Um, they know, stay with you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Out, however that goes. It, you know, we're probably on steroids now, but I can imagine that the things that you're talking about, if I had been putting them in place in the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1960s, these are the things that would have really grown my workforce. We're just at a point where they're kind of really what's left for you to focus on to get competitive advantage. Right. I Somehow I, I figured this some of this out, I think, instinctively, in, in spite of my lack of training to be a leader. But when I had young people join my team, I would say, you know, if I can't promote you in a year, if there's nothing, you're starting here as my assistant, uh, it's a hard job and there's not a lot of glory. If I can't find something on this team in a year, I'll help you find a job outside. And that spoke to people and I was able to attract really bright young people and and I meant it. If I couldn't find a spot, if they were great, they were keepers. I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, fight to keep them on the team in a better role. And if not, if I couldn't do it, and sometimes you can't, you're restricted by head count and um, overhead and all that fun stuff. Then you know, I'd help them find something that that was worthy of their talent. Well, you know, I think what you're talking to about too is being that able to get outside of the box and do for people. I know I lasted in corporate far longer than I should have lasted in um, in corporate because I worked for a very innovative boss who would go to HR, who would fight for me in HR and would create jobs for me that spoke to the things that I wanted to learn right. and that I and the ways that I wanted um, that I wanted that I wanted to grow. I think that's the kind of boss everybody needs. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, this has been amazing. I mean, this hour has gone so fast and I want to make sure that, um, because I just, I, I love this topic on so many levels because um, I just love the fact that you took hope and have really put it out there as a, as a, as a business strategy, because to me, it is a term that gets you know, put into the corner and thought of as, um, as soft. But what you've really shown us today is just how much power it has. Where do people go to find out about your book, to find out about um, all the information that I have been uh, watching to learn more about you in this really important subject? How can they find out about you and to keep in touch with you? Oh, just go to my website, LibbyGill.com. In fact, they can download the first chapter of the book, and it also just came out on audio. Um, so oh, that's great. 
yeah, I did it myself. Um, and it came out, uh, it's on Audible and Amazon. And anybody that wants to shoot a question my way, I can't always answer in the next five minutes, but I, I love to hear. I'd love to hear from your audience if there's anything I can help them with. Well, that'd be great. I know that I am going to, um, because I have read the first chapter, now I'm going to go listen to this on um, Audible. I'm finishing the last chapter of a book I'm reading now, so I'm really excited to dive into this. And I really want to encourage um, the listeners to to do that. This is is really great work and something that I feel really confident that if you put it in place in your business, no matter the size of your organization, the number of your employees, big or small, this truly is what is talking about is truly um, one of your greatest shots at competitive advantage and really creating a culture that is not only going to make your employees and your customers happy, but I venture to say it's probably going to be an environment that you're happier leading. So again, Libby, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And everybody, mark your calendars. Plan to be back here next week to um, to join us for another cutting-edge episode of Thriving in Uncertainty. And remember to share this show with your team members and with your, um, with your clients and with your peers. And so thank you again for joining us for Thriving in Uncertainty, the show that delivers the strategies you need to turn uncertainty to competitive advantage. Are you ready to learn the business strategies you need to succeed no matter what this economy does? Are you interested in learning how the top organizations and how successful leaders are making change work for their companies and using uncertainty as their greatest competitive advantage? Then join the thousands of business owners, sales professionals, and entrepreneurs who have found the answers. Business growth expert Meredith Elliott Powell, author of Thrive, Strategies for Success in Uncertainty offers powerful keynotes, workshops, and training courses for organizations and leaders of sales professionals looking to take their companies to the next level. Voted a top 15 business growth expert to watch and top 40 motivational speaker, Meredith coaches executives, trains next level leaders, and builds sales teams in her innovative three-step proven system to thrive in uncertainty. To learn more, go to valuespeaker.com. To speak with Meredith directly, book Meredith to speak and learn more about her training programs. That's valuespeaker.com. Visit today. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Thriving in Uncertainty. Please join your host, Meredith Elliott Powell, for another program next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This week, embrace the change in your business and yourself.